Hey friends! Hope you're all staying as safe and healthy and comfortable as possible and that you're taking care of all the people and plants and pets that are important to you. If you're listening to this podcast episode on the week of its release and you celebrate Hanukkah, Happy Hanukkah! Additionally, this will be the last People Are the Enemy episode before the 25th, so let me also say Merry Christmas. If you celebrate either of these holidays, I hope the occasions are happy ones for you and yours. I thought this might be a fun and oddly appropriate song to play. It's a mashup of Jose Feliciano's Feliz Navidad with Van Halen's Ain't Talking About Love. And I'm just going to let this run while I give you my usual pre-show spiel. Let me turn it up here for a moment so you can enjoy it. (laughs) That was pretty good. All right, we'll turn it down just a bit here. If you're looking for that on TikTok, you can find it under McClintock Mashups. Uh, There's a bunch of great mashups over there. Folks, you're listening to the People Are the Enemy podcast. I'm the host of the show. My name is Andy Mascola. There are no ads on People Are the Enemy, and there is no Patreon set up for it. If you love this program, and if you'd like to help support it and myself monetarily, and get yourself or the reader in your life some quality fiction, please consider purchasing any or all of my books. I'm the author of 10 novels that are all currently available for purchase worldwide in both paperback and ebook formats via Amazon. And if you don't use Amazon, you can uh, find and buy all of my titles in ebook format at Google Play. Just search my last name, M-A-S-C-O-L-A. That's how you'll find my books on Google Play. If you've already purchased any or all of my stories, thank you, thank you, thank you. I sincerely appreciate your generous patronage. And I'm just going to let this... Give you a little more of this before I hit you with a theme song. It's oddly, uh, it oddly fits. (laughs) And I'll tell you something. I know people uh, talk a lot about uh, David Lee Roth's voice being polarizing. I kind of love it. (laughs) And I'm not a huge Van Halen fan, but... Hit you with a little bit more of this real quick here. As far as mashups go, I think that's pretty damn good. I like that. I thought, again, oddly appropriate, I suppose, given that we're celebrating both Hanukkah and uh, and Christmas with this episode. So, without any further ado, here is the quirky theme song. Thank you. 
Hello, People Are the Enemy listeners! This is episode 259 of the People Are the Enemy podcast. Thank you so much for checking it out. Thank you for spending time with me. If you could tell, I'm feeling much better. And thank you for all the well wishes while I was uh, under the weather. I appreciated uh, reach the reach outs. And uh, via social media, thank you. And I'm feeling uh, stupendous. I'm feeling uh, wonderful. Uh, am I 100% me? Yeah, you know, my taste buds are still a little bit off. You know how you get that when, you're, when you've got a cold? You get the taste buds uh, are a little off and the smeller is a little off. But otherwise... Yeah, I'm, sl- I'm sl- you know, I'm not doing any meds anymore, you know, and I'm not eating soup, so uh, I don't feel like I need it, so I, I'm doing well. Hey, uh, you know who's probably not doing well right now is uh, David Lynch, as he lost his guy, Angelo Badalamente, this past week, yeah. Jeez, uh, this has got to be a tough year for David Lynch, and I'm a, I'm a huge David Lynch fan um, since, you know, since the Twin Peaks days, and then I've I followed his career since then and backtracked on it. Uh, just a huge fan of that guy's, all of that guy's work, including his, his musical projects, including his films, obviously his TV shows, uh, just a wonderful, wonderful body of work and unusual and so uh, unique and original. Uh, and uh, Angelo Badalamente, that was his composer. When I say his composer, I mean Angelo Badalamente composed the music for a, a lot of David Lynch projects. And, uh, and Angelo Badalamente, we lost him last week uh, at the age of 85. But when I say this has got to be a tough year for David Lynch, I mean that because this year we also saw Julie Cruz pass. Yeah. Julie Cruz, uh, you know, I think he was, who originally started as David Lynch's receptionist, uh, who went on to having a, a singing career, had a couple of uh, full-length LPs that were produced by David Lynch, and uh, acted, acted in in, uh, in Twin Peaks, and I think in like a uh, uh, a music production that I think was filmed uh, that, that Lynch put together for her specifically. Uh, just a wonderful, wonderful talents, these folks. And it's got to be tough for a guy who's worked with these people for, you know, decades to, to, to see them pass and uh, to try to continue on without them. That's heartbreaking. Another one, Al Strabell, was, a, was a, fo- a fellow that we lost earlier this year. Another Twin Peaks alum. If you're a fan of the show, you'll remember Al as the, uh, the one-armed man. Yeah. Anyway, I... Uh, I, I, I was, uh, you know, online as I, as I tend to be, and on TikTok I'd found, I'd found uh, this user who calls themselves uh, Stay Creative, or SCRT, uh, Stay Creative Co., uh, posted this clip, I think it's from a documentary, and it's David Lynch and Angelo Badalamente talking about their collaboration, and it's, it's quite wonderful and, and kind of uh, touching, and I wanted to play it for you right now. So this is David Lynch and Angelo Badalamente, it's a short clip, talking about uh, their collaborative works. Here it is. worked with Angelo Badalamenti since Blue Velvet. And I love Angelo like a brother. And he can write, as you all know, if you've heard his music, um, music that'll tear your heart out. David would sit here and I'd say, well, what do you see, David? And in David's mind, you can, you can just see that he was visualizing and he would say, Okay, Angelo, now we got to make a change because from behind a tree in the back of the woods, there's this very lonely girl. Her name is Laura Palmer, and it's very sad, but get something that matches her. And, and, and I just segued into this. David got up. Big hug. He said, Angelo, 
That's Twin Peaks. I've worked with Angela. I love that clip. Thought it was very sweet. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, a big loss. A loss for Twin Peaks fandom. A loss, especially, though, however, for David Lynch, you know, who lost his collaborator. And obviously the Battle of Mente fans and family. Um, damn, man. You know, it's a, it's a, like I said, like a tough year. I, I guess it's got to be a tough year if, if you lose, you know, these people that are important to you. Anytime you lose somebody. But a creative person losing their collaborators uh, are also, uh, you know, it's got to be particularly hard to lose, especially... So many. And if I'm forgetting anybody, forgive me. I know Twin Peaks is a, a huge, huge cast, uh, as uh, as that show has uh, run, uh, you know, ran, what, three seasons, including the the, uh, the Return, which was quite good, by the way. That Showtime, that Showtime, The Return, initially, I know people kind of like, um, they soured on it a bit after a while, uh, but uh, I'll tell you what, man, and I kind of watched the first few episodes and I said, yeah, I get it, and I, then, I, then I stopped, but then I returned to it, oddly enough, uh, appropriately named The Return, and I, I, I watched it again, and then I watched the entire season, I think, two and a half more times. I loved it that much. I think it was just kind of a grower. You know what I mean? It's uh, as you know, a lot of David Lynch's work is obviously very unique, very original, and uh, is uh, an acquired taste for some. And uh, and you know, he he's he's constantly evolving and try trying new things. And uh, but with, with that, it was wonderful that he did that. I think a lot of those folks that were in that uh, return have since passed. Uh, you know, a lot of the uh, a lot of that cast uh, were were older by the time they they filmed those episodes but fortunately they got everybody in or as many as they could and uh, a lot of we've lost a lot of those folks since then i you know i don't mean to bring the show down i you know this is a comedy show by nature my goodness you know i started it off with a bang and then i brought you down with the angelo battlemente news what kind of person does that not the you know what can i talk to about here what can i what can i how can i make you laugh uh you know i read <laughs> it's funny man I, in less than a week, I read all 18 issues of David Klaus' 8-Ball. And I don't know if you know this comic or the work of David Klaus. If you've ever seen the movie Ghost World uh, with, uh, uh, shoot, uh, Scarlett Johansson and uh, Steve Buscemi is in it. it it's, a, it's a wonderful film. Uh, it's based on a Daniel Klaus' story that was one of the stories featured in this indie comic that ran from the late 80s to the mid-aughts called 8-Ball. And it was all written and drawn by this guy, Daniel Klaus, and it is like the darkest of humor. Just like, if Mad Magazine was made for, like, uh, just cynical Gen Xers, that's, that's exactly what 8-Ball what is. And it, it's, if you're, if you're a cynical Gen Xer, and I, I suppose I consider myself that, uh, you, you're gonna love it. And, and I had never read 8-Ball. I'd read a lot of, a lot of other Daniel Klaus standalone books, but I'd never read 8-Ball, and I just happened to be at the library, and I found the complete 8-Ball. This is over 500 pages, 18 comics, uh, all collected together in this one volume. And I read it in less than a week. And and Daniel Klaus has a very, very uh, distinct style in terms of his drawing. He tends to, he tends to, you know, like Charles Burns, I don't know if you know Black Hole or Charles Burns' work. You know, he's uh, Charles Burns, you, you, very identifiable, very shadowy. Klaus is like that a lot of times, but he kind of uh, has a tendency to draw people's, you know, caricat almost caricature-like, where it's kind of like their worst features. You know, a lot of his characters have awful teeth, uh, you know, uh, high foreheads and, uh, you know, uh, you know, odd noses and whatnot. You know, he he's, you, you can see it immediately that he has the ability to draw people beautifully if he wants to, but... <laughs> 
but for whatever reason, he chooses to draw like people just looking hideous. And uh, basically, most of these these anecdotes and the stories within these these eight ball comics, and a lot of them again were shorter. A lot of them were just kind of. Um, uh, uh, you know, like one or two pages, again, sort of like a mad magazine, except, again, for adults and for, for cynical Gen Xers specifically, you know. Uh, but uh, you got the feeling that uh, it was the worst of society is what, what Daniel Klaus was poking fun at, you know, the, the, you know the, the, the stereotypical whatever, you know, whether it's indie nerds or jocks or business people or religious zealots, you know, he just kind of like had his way with everybody in there. And, and what was odd was that, like, I basically sat down and read these 18 comics, again, over 500 pages in less than a week. Uh, and uh, I went out into the world today. I had to go food shopping. I had to go to Costco to get some some supplies, some, some stuff for the house. And uh, just looking at people, like, everybody looked like a character from 8-Ball to me. <laughs> it's like, you know... I, I don't know how else to describe that. Like you, you, if you, I guess if you, if you uh, ingest enough of like one style of media, you tend to it tends to kind of stick with you. You know what I mean? I remember like when I drove cross country, I listened to a John Irving book, and it was that Widow for One Year. Um, I think it was I think it was made into a film called The Door in the Floor. That might be right, but uh, there was a narrator. It was like all first person narration of of these actions, and it was like. This, it was a huge book, so it was like this huge cassette collection of this John Irving story, and I'll never forget, like, listening to it for hours upon hours while I was driving across the country, and I'd stop somewhere to go into, like, uh, to get gas and then go into, like, a, a convenience store, and i just hear the narrator in my, my head. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, and then I walked into a convenience store, and I looked at the Twinkies, you know? <laughs> It's like, I was like, oh man, this, maybe I gotta take a, take a rest on this book here. Maybe I just put this aside for a little bit and listen to something else. But yeah, it could do that. So I kind of felt like that had happened with just having my face inside this eight ball book of all these grotesque characters. And when I say grotesque, I mean like, you know, beautifully rendered, but obviously, you know, exaggerated grotesque uh, caricature types, Car uh, you know, caricatures. And uh, uh, just like walking out into the world and just like looking at all these people around me and seeing them as these eight ball characters, these hideous characters. And I'll tell you what, man, and I've said this before, I know, and I don't know if I said it on the show, but like supermarket lighting, can it get any worse? Like you look terrible in that lighting. It could be the most beautiful person and they just look hideous in this god awful lighting, you know? I my you know my kingdom for a for a, a a supermarket with beautiful lighting where you're you're kind of you kind of look beautiful. And I'll tell you something else. And I I know <laughs> I know I mentioned this before, but I listen to this podcast more than any other. And I listen to this podcast while I'm shopping. I do. I listen to myself and Rachel. <laughs> I I take us with us when we're shop when I'm shopping. And it's it's so great. And I don't know if this is just me thinking like, my God, everybody should be listening to this. And other folks who hear me and hear this show think to themselves, I don't know what this guy's talking about. This is the most niche thing ever. He's talking about Haruki Murakami books. He's talking about David Lynch films. He's uh, eulogizing Jean-Luc Godard. Who does this guy think this is appealing to? Look, I don't know. But I'll tell you something, and maybe this has something to do with it, okay? Uh, when you're inside of it, it's hard to see from the outside. And, and what I mean by that is, like, I read this book by Morrissey, okay, when I was a fan, uh, I read Morrissey's autobiography, and what stood out and what shocked me most was that Morrissey 
was sincerely thought that the Smiths would be, like, the biggest band in the world. Like, the way U2 was, like, in the late 80s. Like, where they were, you know, everybody knew U2, everybody loved U2. U2 was played on terrestrial radio. Their music videos were all over MTV. They were touring the world. Everything that they did was covered by the news. Morrissey sincerely thought that the Smiths would be that. Now, like, I don't know about you, but I look at the Smiths and I'm like, this is so niche. There's no way you could imagine, like, the entire world embracing this morbidity. You know what I mean? And again, I've said this before. I love, love, love the Smiths. Quite possibly uh, my, my favorite British band, okay, of all time, okay? And and I love what Morrissey did at that time, okay? Since then, look, all right, dubious career, okay? Again, time seems to change these artists for whatever reason. But my point being, uh, Morrissey thought that the Smiths would be the biggest band in the world. And and again, in retrospect, I look and I say, How? Are you are you are you kidding? This is the most niche thing ever. You got a bunch of morbid teenagers listening to this. You know what I mean? That's not what the world is. You know what I mean? The world is full of people who, you know, want to try to smile. You know what I mean? And try to, you know, roll the windows down and drive down the highway, bopping their head to something uh, you know, hip and and upbeat. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying that they're wrong for that. You know, I'm saying that's fine sometimes, too. Sometimes I enjoy that. But uh, but I'm saying that to to think that the Smiths would be the biggest band of the world, to me, just seems outrageous. To wit, uh, somebody listening to this podcast, listening to me say, like, I can't believe this podcast is not the biggest thing in the world, might seem outrageous. Again, they might say, Andy, this is the most niche programming ever. You've got, you've got loyal podcast listeners here. But you can't expect this to cross over, meaning, like, to mass popularity. I say, why not? I think this is fantastic. And again, I listen to this show more than any other. You're listening to this show. God bless you, first of all. Thank you. Um, And you're right, okay? The rest of the world is wrong, okay? We're in on this together. You're right. The rest of the world is wrong. I'm going to play one more thing for you here. And again, uh... Not to get too serious, I thought this was fun, though. This is Brian Eno talking about uh, 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 his feelings about artists and, and getting a job. Check this out. Check this out. <laughs> after, I tell you, after I tell you everybody's wrong for not listening to this podcast, I'm playing like the most niche thing ever. Here's Brian Eno uh, uh, being interviewed talking about getting a job. Check this out. Intelligence is um, generated by communities, by a cooperation of some kind. Um, so... I suppose the the thing about the the biggest obstacle to that at the moment is that people have to earn a living. I often get asked to come and talk at art schools, and I rarely get asked back because the first thing I always say is, I'm here to persuade you not to have a job. And the the professors always look a bit nervous at that point, since they, they often consider that their task is to somehow smooth you into a job. Um, so my, my first message to people is try not to get a job. Um, that doesn't mean try not to do anything. It means try to leave yourself in a position where you do the things that you want to do with your time um, and where you take maximum advantage of your whatever your possibilities are. Um, and I suppose the, so the obstacle is that of course most people aren't in a position to do that. So I want to do anything to work to a future where everybody is in a position to do that. I should say that in terms of basic income, I probably know less about the subject than anybody else here. But what I do know is that the 
concept is the closest thing I've heard to achieving the kind of future that I would like to live in. There you go. That was posted by uh, somebody called The Music Nerve on TikTok. The Music Nerve, N-E-R-V-E, not The Music Nerd. Anyway, I thought that was pretty good. You know, Brian Eno, over time, has said some amazingly prophetic and profound things. It's kind of it's kind of eerie that you can go back and you can listen to Brian Eno quotes and see how much of what he predicted for the future came true. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy. Uh, uh, to wit, I say, uh, you know... What he just said there in terms of like him not understanding income or, you know, wanting to uh, believing that you shouldn't have to get a job, that you should be able to just do something that you want artistically is a beautiful sentiment. Obviously, it's a bit out of touch. <laughs> you know what I mean? One thing that, that stands out in my mind, and I, I know this because I read uh, I read that that book uh, by uh, Chris Franz, the uh, the drummer for Talking Heads, and he talked about working with Brian Eno. And if, if you know the Talking Heads discography and you know uh how they worked with brian eno and, and did a a few wonderful albums with with eno um they eventually stopped working with him and you might say why because they were super successful the reason was according to chris franz is that eno's monetary demands just got out of control that <laughs> like he was flying on planes he demanded this and that and the other and uh, there were huge bills that came with working with him. And uh, the band eventually just said, you know, we can't we can't afford to do this anymore, Brian. And uh, they had to uh, part ways. But uh, yeah, wonderful, wonderful works, uh, at least that were put together. And Brian Eno has had a, an amazing career. I haven't heard his latest album, though I heard he sings on it again. God bless him. Can't wait to hear that. At some point, I've got to check it out. Anyway, jeez, uh, folks, I am uh, I am out of out of stuff. And uh, it's at this point in the program where I am going to uh, wish you a happy holiday again. I hope, you, hope everybody's doing well. hope you take care of yourselves. I'm going to hand things off right now to our friend, Rachel from Des Moines. And she is going to give you the latest chart chat. So, take it away, Rachel. Thanks, Andy. So glad to hear you're feeling better from your illness last week. I want to send out get well wishes to listeners Mary and Jill and anyone else out there who's dealing with sickness or crud of any kind. I also want to send good thoughts to my friend Tony and say thanks for listening, and I'm glad you enjoy the chart picks. As always, I do appreciate every listener, and thank you for making the show a part of your week. For our 70s chart this week, we turn to December 11th of 1971. At number 55, we have questions 67 and 68 slash I'm a Man by Chicago. This was a A B side that both charted. Uh, the A was at, made it to 24 and the B 49. Uh, Questions had been Chicago's first single back in July of 1969 when they were Chicago Transit Authority. And they, both songs are off of that album. Uh, and then it was re-released in late 71 after they'd had success with other singles. And I just was looking over the my records and we haven't had a lot of Chicago on here. And they're a group that I enjoy. And this whole album, Chicago Transit Authority, is really great. It's kind of weird to think of it as singles, actually. Um, so check that out if you get a chance. At number 14 is uh, Scorpio by Dennis Coffey and the Detroit Guitar Band. This will make it to number six. Uh, this is an instrumental song. And Dennis Coffey was from Detroit, but I read that he learned to play guitar in the Upper Peninsula in a place called Copper City, and he had his first session work at age 15. Um, and I did see he was born on November 10th, so making him a, a Scorpio, like myself, so it makes sense that he wanted to call his composition that. 
I wanted to mention that uh, Better Call Saul fans will recognize Dennis Coffey's Scorpio from episode 207, where Jimmy starts dressing in a much more flashy and colorful manner. It plays over the montage of him wearing all his new suits. And at number nine, we have Brand New Key by Melanie. And this would make it to number one. That was her biggest hit, but also the Lay Down Candles in the Rain made it to number six. And this one is known, I think pretty well known. It's used in Boogie Nights when we introduced to Heather Graham's character Roller Girl. And I think it has very relatable lyrics. And this was also came gained popularity this year with being featured in a sketch in the Kids in the Hall revival in the, the Doomsday Bunker DJ, where Dave Foley played a character called Motormouth in the Morning, who I apparently only had this single left, kept playing it. Um, and my joke was, you know, if it was me, I'd play that B-side at some point. So, of course, I had to look that up. And the B-side was, some say, in parentheses, I got devil. Maybe flip that over one time. And there's a great quote on the Wikipedia page for Brand New Key um, from Melanie with her thoughts on the sexual innuendo of the lyrics of Brand New Key. And she says, The song I wrote in about 15 minutes one night. I thought it was cute, a kind of 30s tune. I guess a lock and a key have always been Freudian symbols, and pretty obvious ones at that. There was no deep, serious expression behind the song, but people read things into it. They made up incredible stories as to what the lyrics said and what the song meant. In some places, it was even banned from the radio. For While we're in this, this 1971 chart, I did want to point out a few commercial songs. At number 61 was Carly Simon's Anticipation, which would go on to appear in ads for Heinz Ketchup in the 80s in the original glass bottle. We also have two versions of I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing on our Hot 100. At number 44, our friends The New Seekers. And at number 31, the original Coca-Cola ad performers, The Hillside Singers. And the making of this ad, or I guess maybe the inspiration of this ad, was dramatized or fictionalized in the last episode of Mad Men, but it was a real ad. And I know that both versions made it to the top 40 at one point because I can remember listening to a different uh, 71 or maybe 72 chart where Casey made the executive decision to only play one version. In the 80s this week, we're in 1983, December 10th. And starting off at number 95 is a Canadian group, Saga, with their song, The Flyer. And this will make it to number 70, or this was actually down from a peak of number 79. Saga was from Oakville, Ontario. And this is off of their sixth album, Heads or Tails. And previously uh, from this group, we'd featured their song, On the Loose, which is their only top 40 hit. But I feel like these guys should have been more successful, or at least there's, you know, their songs are so good that I feel like why aren't we hearing them on classic rock radio? I don't know. And I remember really liking the video for The Flyer. I feel like I referred to them in the past tense. As far as I can tell, they're still active, still going. At number 69, we have The Politics of Dancing by Reflex. This will make it to number 24. And they were a UK group, and this was their first single off of the album of the same name. I don't, I, I don't know why I thought this, but they were before the Duran Duran song, The Reflex. So if anything, the Duran Duran song might have been named after them. Who knows? Uh, but this was an international hit, and they did have one other U.S. Hot 100 appearance. And I think of this one as being featured on 80s compilation CDs for you know seeing the ads on TV. I feel like that's how I first got exposed to this one. 
At number 54 is the group Real Life with Send Me an Angel. And this would make it to number 29. But it was number one in New Zealand and Germany. Real Life were an Australian group. And I read this outstanding fact on the Wikipedia page. After hearing, hearing an early version of Send Me an Angel, the group's manager, Glenn Wheatley, basically founded his own record label, Wheatley Records, just to release this as a single. So that's how much he believed in them and he believed in this song. And I really like this one. They also re-released it in 89. It only got a couple points higher. So maybe you can compare and contrast, see which version that you like better. At number 44 is Gold by Spandau Ballet. And that made it to number 29. And they were an English group and this was the fourth single off of their third album, True. And I read on Wikipedia, this was inspired by John Barry's work as the James Bond film scores. So maybe they chose gold because of Goldfinger. The man with the golden gun, golden eye. That hadn't happened yet, but Spandau Ballet knew what was coming. Um, and I, I'm not going to lie, I kind of became a fan of this song after uh, Jimmy Pardo's imitation of a fan at the Tony Hadley concert who was the lead singer of Spandau Ballet and I guess is now performing as a solo artist. Um, but I'll try to find the video for that. It's pretty great. Uh, number 17 is Big Country with In a Big Country. And number 17 is as high as this would get, which is a tragedy because this song is amazing. I super love it. Big Country was a Scottish band. This was the third single off of their debut album, The Crossing. And it really seems to be beloved by many people. Last November, we were in an 83 chart, and I heard this song. It was unseasonably warm day in November, so I rolled the windows down. It just gave me this amazing feeling, and I tweeted out about it, and I got a great response just from what I would consider a wide swath of my followers who have many different musical tastes. I think it just appeals to a wide range of people and just can put you in a really good mood. At number 12, we have Olivia Newton-John with Twist of Fate. Let's make it to number five. And uh, this was, if it sounds kind of soundtracky or from a movie, this is because it was from the soundtrack of Two of a Kind, which is a reteaming with Olivia and John Travolta. And the tagline for the movie was, it took a twist of fate to make them two of a kind. I feel like the movie was not a big success, but like I say, there's a number five hit for Olivia. That was her final appearance, top 10 appearance in the US charts, Hot 100 chart. Just, I think maybe a lesser known song from her, if it got associated with this movie, people don't play it as much anymore, but it's, I think it's a really good one. At number 10 is Church of the Poison Mind by Culture Club. And this was the first single off of their second album, Color by Numbers, which of course had the huge hit, Karma Chameleon. This would make it, this 10 was as high as that would get. For some reason, this feels less known in the United States than other songs of theirs. Like when I first heard it, I kind of felt like I had quote-unquote discovered something um, and then when I looked at the play counts I was kind of shocked like this has 8.7 million and Karma Chameleon has 476.8 million. I really like Church of the Poison Mind has some great uh, background vocals too. The backing vocals were done by UK singer Helen Terry who performed on many Culture Club songs and it said that the band also included her in the videos which is pretty cool. And finally, from the 80s this week, at number four, we have Daryl Hall and John Oates with Say It Isn't So. This will make it to number two. And this was a new single off of their compilation Rock and Soul Part One. And I love when bands can do that. They can put out a compilation, but they do give you something, a little something extra for your time. 
I think my personal favorite is Mary Jane's Last Dance off of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers' Greatest Hits. But I really, really like the emotion in this song. Like you can really, it really fits well with the title. Um, just how you might feel in that situation. And just another great one from the, our fellas from Philly. Well, that's all from me this week. Thanks so much for listening. Back to you, Andy. Thank you, Rachel. Awesome stuff. Holy moly, that 83 chart. Uh, Real Life, Send Me an Angel. Oh my God. My cousin and I loved that song so much. I wasn't, I wasn't even double digits. I was still so, so young when that came out. And that was the first time around, because I know it came back around in 89, as Rachel mentioned. But I'm pretty sure that um, Send Me an Angel was the very first video, music video I ever saw on MTV. That I may have seen a music video prior to that, but I remember like we didn't have MTV for a long time. And I I, I was must have been at another kid's house and they turned on MTV or maybe their older sibling did and that music video was on and I remember like, oh my God, I love this song. Really, really cool. And uh, yeah, Big Country, in a big country, yeah, that song has so much mass appeal. It's Rachel's right. It really manages to cross over and transcend uh, a lot of uh, a lot of different music fans. A wonderful, wonderful tune. Really, really great stuff this week. Uh, this has been episode two hundred and fifty nine of the People Are the Enemy podcast. Our theme song is Walrus Love by Nokia Ocean. You can find that song and more at pizzapuppies.bandcamp.com. My name is Andy Mascola. You can purchase my novels via Amazon and other online book retailers in both paperback and ebook formats for as little as $1.99. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you, Rachel from Des Moines. Happy holidays. We love you. Peace.